I'm Christopher Lydon. This is Open Source. We're in David Foster Wallace world. Our lives imitating his wacky art. The new movie catches him on tour in 1996. Not quite 20 years ago. His masterpiece, Infinite Jest, was new. His cult was young. Our future was ripening. This was DFW on Wisconsin Public Radio. You know, the book is meant to seem kind of surreal and outlandish at first, and then in sort of a creepy way to seem not all that implausible. And it it, it would seem to me, I mean, at some point in the next 10 or 15 years, we're going to have virtual reality pornography, which I would just invite you to think about. I mean, what what it's going to be like and what sort of resources we're going to have to cultivate in ourselves and in our citizenry to keep from sort of dying. On the same book tour, he spoke with Charlie Rose on PBS. The thing that the thing that interests me in, in a lot of the stuff I think that I do has to do with commercial entertainment, its efficiency, its sheer ability to deliver pleasure in large doses, changes people's relationship to art and entertainment. It changes what an audience is looking for. I would argue it changes us in deeper ways than that. And then David came to Boston, to this very studio at WBUR, to speak with me on a show known as The Connection. He was a recovering addict who had sobered up around issues like instant gratification and spiritual drift. I think somehow the culture has taught us, or we've allowed the culture to teach us, that really the the point of living is to get as much as you can and experience as much pleasure as you can, and that the implicit promise is that that will make you happy. I know that's that's almost offensively simplistic. Um, the, The effects of it aren't simplistic at all. I don't have children, but I'm sort of obsessed with the idea of what, what my children will think of me and of us, sort of, of, of what we've done with all we've been given um, and, and why we are so sad. He had come to notice that amusement and alcohol could be lethal. His generation looked to him strangely safe, secure, well-educated, and doomed by its techno-comforts. Eight years ago, he took his own life without ever seeing a Facebook feed, a Snapchat story, a YouTube playlist, a listicle from BuzzFeed, or a Vox explainer. He did not think that the transition from TV to interactive internet screens would make us happier. It is that sadness of David Foster Wallace, the sadness that he saw in all of us, that brings us back to DFW in the movie called The End of the Tour. Back to his triple crown of thorns, media, entertainment, addiction. We begin this hour with A.O. Scott, the New York Times movie reviewer, an all-round pundit in our mediated culture, which puts him in a spot not unlike David Foster Wallace's. His job is to watch everything and react. When I was an undergraduate, there was a lot going on both in the popular culture and I think in the academic culture that encouraged a certain amount of both self-consciousness and aggressive ironization of experience and also maybe sort of a feeling of of belatedness of having come you know too late for all of the of the really exciting breakthroughs and adventures in the in the culture whether it was in pop music or in film or in literature you know the really big important stuff the trails had been blazed and you know we were kind of caught in the wake of it and supplying commentary and so he was someone who set himself very much in the the footsteps of some giant precursors, you know, um, Pynchon, probably Nabokov, Mailer, Gaddis, Barth, Burroughs, you know, yeah, DeLillo, the big American postmodernists, the radical experimenters with the novel form. And reading 
infinite jests. For me, and I think for a lot of people like me, it is a particular demographic profile. A white male college graduate born in the, the late 60s or, or early 70s. Everything that we'd been exposed to in books we've read, in television that we'd watched, in sports, and then in philosophy and literary theory, the full gamut from high to low seemed to be somewhere in that book. Mm. If you studied it hard enough, you could sort of crack the code on the world we were all living in. And also, you could have something... That book was a trophy. Yes. If you had that book and you had actually could make a credible claim to have read all 1,079 pages of it, that could feel like something you'd really done, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Let me say, we come back to David Foster Wallace, Tony, because the sadness in that book, and it was palpable yeah. in his voice, is still out there in the digital generation and among yes. their aged analog parents. That's the puzzle to me. I, you know, as is often the case with anyone who emerges as a, a prophet in the age of mass media, their prophecy stays true, but even more so, you know, 25 or 30 or however many mm. years later. So he was talking about television. I mean, he was writing in fairly early days of the Internet and in advance of a lot of the the, the digital culture that we now tend to, to blame for our alienation and loneliness and melancholy, and that is the source of great worry for the younger generation. We think they're all so disconnected. They're leading these, you know, mediated lives from, from the cradle through grade school. And I think that that sadness, that melancholy, that sense of a disconnection, of a perpetual unfulfillment, is a condition of modern life that renews itself in, in every generation and in every new technological dispensation. So I've always felt like he got the sound of the voices in mm. contemporary Americans' heads better than just about anyone else. He was a very precise mimic, in a way, of, of a certain style of consciousness that I think is still very much with us and has, if anything, intensified as the artifice and the addictive power of television has been supplanted and trumped by the addictive power of all of these other screens that we now have. Tony, you touched on something very sensitively that still hangs me up around David Foster Wallace. It was a piece long before his depression was known, much less suicide contemplated. It was an article, I think, 15 years ago, which you ended in the New York Review of Books mm -hmm. saying, is he the most incisive analyst of this condition or is he the gaudiest symptom of it. And you said, of course, yeah. it's both. Yeah. I mean, he was like an, a scholar of drunkenness who was still drinking. Right. I wonder still how far we've gotten from that infatuation with a culture that we sort of all know is, is meretricious and maybe self-destructive. Well, I think that's right. But we also can't do without it. And we can't, you know, exactly. um, we don't know how to reject it, because what would it mean to reject it? In the film, in the end of the tour, he loves action movies. He loves junk food. He has an entirely unironic devotion to Pop-Tarts mm. and McDonald's hamburgers <laughs> and, and bad blockbuster movies and daytime television in the hotel room watching three different soap operas at, at once and sort of completely getting lost in them. So on the one hand, you know, we can know that these things are bad for us. They may be rotting us from the inside, killing our souls, alienating us from one another. And yet they seem to supply not just pleasure, but forms of meaning that we seem to to need and and seem unable to to imagine ourselves without. I mean, I I spend an awful lot of time going to the movies, and it's it's uh, it's my job. It might not be very good for my health, but I can't 
in good conscience just sort of, you know, <laughs> um, reject them out of hand. Wallace and his generation and certainly the generations who have come after are not, have no use for the kind of cultural hierarchies that would have insisted on the greater value of one kind of thing over another. At the same time, there's this sense that we have to find some way to discipline ourselves, to limit the power, to resist the power that this kind of media, that this consumer civilization has over us. And it's very, very hard to do. And the thing that I think he proved in his work or came up against again and again is you can't it's not possible just to think yourself out of it and i think that this is a lot of the hmm. the pathos in his work comes from this idea that you know we're really smart people we know a lot and we've read a lot and we have a lot of information and if we could just use our minds we could outsmart this thing whatever we want to call this this thing, whether we call it consumer society or media modern America or television yeah. or media saturation or whatever, but in a way that we could think ourselves out of our own condition and out of our own weakness into something better. And, and I think that, that the brutal fact is that we can't. Our brains, prodigious as they, as they are, not quite enough to get ourselves out of the traps that we've built. It would have to take something else. One of the reasons that people latch on, for example, to, to his commencement address is that he seems to offer some kind of idea that some kind of notion that there could be something else that, that in, you know. Yeah, there's the um, rub. There's the rub and it touches on him, but also on you. In yeah. his post-Infinite Jest time, including the famous graduation address, he seemed to be saying, turn the TV off. It was his post-addictive period, and he seemed to be yeah. wanting to go back to a different kind of human reality and a literary yes. reality, both. I wonder what you make yeah. of that as a serious statement and testament, but then I want to know how you experience yeah. the media surround yourself. I think it's very hard. You can't just walk away from everything. You can't entirely seal yourself off. But you do have to, I think, find for yourself in your relationships with other people, in your own work. I mean, you, you have to find some value, I guess. To take it back to television, which is what he was most interested in and in a way most eloquent about, you know, it will give you an endless supply of stories and meanings and emotions. It will fill your day. You know, it will mm. fill 24 hours of every day with all of those things in a, in a dazzling variety. But you'll end up feeling empty and malnourished and, and alone. So in a way, it's a very simple, basic and obvious thing to say, but it certainly bears, um, bears repeating. You need to find something else. And it can seem, and I think in some ways in the, in the commencement address, it sounds sort of banal and sentimental to say so, but you need friendship, you need love, you need meaningful work, something that is maybe not remarked on enough in discussions of him is his lifelong devotion to to teaching, you know, and, and not teaching at glamorous, prestigious institutions, you know, teaching like in, in very kind of ordinary American places. Teaching is, is something that, you know, that has a kind of very concrete and tangible and inarguable value. You're helping someone else. Um, and that was a lot of, of who he was and, and what he did as well. Is that who you are? I do some teaching, actually, now that you mention it. You know, it's very easy when you do what I do, when you write about popular culture and just culture generally all the time, to fall into a stance of easy knowingness or cynicism and to ironize everything and to raise your eyebrows at everything. And, mm -hmm. and it does take an 
an effort, and I think it is part of the the ethic of how I I approach my work that I do try to keep some other some humanistic values in in my sight, whatever I'm writing about. Um, I don't know if I succeed at that. It's not for me to say, but but I do think that contemporary popular culture is so fascinating, partly because it offers so much and can satisfy so little at the same time. And I think trying to to live in the world, to live intelligently and critically in the world that's dominated by it is a great challenge, but but a worthwhile one. That was the New York Times movie critic A.O. Scott. Coming up, the web is a work in progress with Paul Ford and Maria Bustillos, who say we might still get it right. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Out of our own radio files, here is the late David Foster Wallace on his Infinite Jest book tour in 1996. His novel was rooted in TV addiction, but digital culture was on the horizon. The book is strategically set in the future. It's not really supposed to be a reflection of the way things are now, but a kind of extrapolation on mm-hmm. trends a little bit. Mm-hmm. When you think about, you know, first HDTV is going to come and then there's going to be virtual reality. You know, I mean, we're going to have to come to some sort of uh, understanding with ourselves about how much of this we're going to allow ourselves because it's probably going to get a lot more fun than real life is, right? Then there's the other thought, which I tend to subscribe to, that broadcast television is already dead and that the new world of interactive media, the Internet world, is is a counter to that, not an extension of that. The idea, though, that improved technology is going to solve the problems that the technology has caused seems to me <laughs> to be a bit quixotic. For me, I understand that there's a, a certain amount of hope about the Internet democratizing people and activating. The fact of the matter is, is it seems to me if you've still got a nation of people sitting in front of screens pretending, you know, interacting with images rather than each other, feeling lonely and so needing more and more images, you're gonna, you, I think you're mm. going to ba- have the same basic problem. And the better the images get, the more tempting it's going to be to interact with images rather than other people. And I think the emptier it's going to get. That's just a suspicion and just my own opinion. 20 years on, our guests are digital natives, hard at work in web world. Paul Ford is a computer programmer and a writer. We know you, Paul, from your book-length piece in Bloomberg Businessweek that went viral, among the geeks anyway, titled, What is Code? DFW stuck me there, Paul, uh, on on the matter of uh, the counter to TV culture or the extension of it. I'm blushing into my selfie stick. I wouldn't be here myself but for the Internet, but I also wonder if he was right that that the internet screen world is more like the broadcast world than unlike it. What do you think? I think what we've seen, that, thank you for having me on. I Pleasure, think, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. I think what we've seen is that uh, it's, it's both worse and better. We live in this tremendous glut where we are surrounded by joyous ephemera. You can go find anything, you can read anything, you can learn anything. And I think people might say, hey, look, you know, Wikipedia is a isn't as good as Encyclopedia Britannica used to be. But most of us, if we're honest, will admit that Wikipedia has been this, you know, tremendous net asset in our life. And so there's this enormous collective power of human beings doing really interesting things. But there's a a native narcissism to the medium where you're Mm. reloading Twitter all the time and sort of seeing these little tiny atomic reactions to your own thoughts, which is impossible. That was impossible to predict. Nobody thought we would end up in this zone of sort of micro-narcissistic 
specific self-indulgence, right? Like that's not that nobody, people, people saw the narcissism, they saw uh, the, the desire for entertainment, but I don't think they realized how, how engaging and exciting that aspect of it could be. So I think that there are wonderful things and I think there, but I think we're, we've, we've remained with a number of compulsive behaviors. They're just different. Humans will, humans will find ways to, to do those things. And I think also that it's in such the best interest of a business, you know, a business like can't the people who make candy crush to create addictive patterns. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, Wikipedia is always the last refuge of the, of the web enthusiast. Television ever was able to. <laughs> but let's, let's remember that it's the crack of dawn. It's just big bang moment in internet world. Uh, sketch, sketch the future that you're working on. The future I'm working on today, you mean? Well, in general, a, a, a sort of a, a, the optimistic vision. My optimistic vision is that we can use the tools around us. Uh, it's, it's, it's a vision that's been going on since Doug Engelbart in the 60s wrote about the augment system and created uh, hypertext. You know, I mean, this, is, this is the old stuff, but the idea is that the, the computer can augment human intelligence and make us wiser. And there's a, the, the irony is, of course, we find ourselves going back, the more you think about this and the more you think about how to actually empower human beings, not just make money, but empower them, the more you find yourself going back to uh, the 50s and the 60s and the early days, the, the days where people were talking about cybernetics and thinking, you know, what are the tools that I could add to my own experience? What, what viewpoints into history, what viewpoints, what ways to analyze and, and understand? And so in the Bloomberg piece, I'm writing a lot about code. And I write about it not specifically because everyone should go out and learn how to program, but just because this Thank great, you, yeah, this great massive world is emerging and you need to, you want to know where this power is coming from in, in the digital. And so that's knowing about that stuff is important. Let me just say, I'm, I'm always of two minds about this big subject, but uh, let me just throw it out that I want to hear you, Paul and Maria, on the matter of the human touch in web world. I mean, something like physical touch, the living presence of other people out there. But let me go to Maria Bustillos. You're an astute reader not just of David Foster Wallace, but of the Internet age in general. We read you in The All and The New Yorker on subjects from cyberbullying to Bitcoin. Let's hear the vision. And I, I, again, the human touch. What Wallace said in your 1996 interview that struck me the most, I listened to it earlier today, was about selfishness. He said that we had hmm. become lethally selfish in our sort of sedu uh, the seductive nature of entertainment had made us selfish and we no longer were willing to think about the consequences of what we were doing to other people and we would complain about taxes being raised you know instead of like deciding that we want to live in a culture that doesn't let people starve to death or be cold and i think after 20 years of the internet we're starting to see uh, like in our politics right now, you can see the total disarray in the Republican field. I think that this is partly um, Wallace's predictions bearing fruit. People aren't happy with these candidates. You see it in the fact that Hillary Clinton hasn't really gotten the traction that one thought she might have done, where you see Bernie Sanders, who really is like very keen on helping the disadvantaged, doing surprisingly well. So I see a humanity kind of like rising up out of 
um, a consciousness and like looking in the mirror and seeing the bad things that have happened as a result of, the, of what Wallace predicted. I agree, you. I'm glad you mentioned it. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the background noise coming out of the 2016 campaign, even as we broadcast, is not encouraging to anybody's hope of a of a liberated public conversation. Paul, how do you how do you respond? I mean, the evidence to this point is is banal, idiotic. I mean, it's it's bad. I'm in total agreement on the banality, but you know. Um, it's it's almost uh, it's remarkable that you put Maria and me both on this program because we have been chatting ambiently for years and when she comes to New York City we go out and we get coffee and uh, she gives big strong tremendous hugs right so there's a physicality <laughs> good actually yeah there's a there's an emerging physicality and and sense of literal human touch that I think actually the internet enabled and I think that. It's certainly changed, you know, human sexuality. I mean, I think people are more have more intimate opportunity now, regardless of Tinder is a good thing. You think? I mean, I think it is. I think it, Tinder is a tricky case, but I, I you know, half the people you ask for it, Paul. Come on. I, I Tinder, I don't know because I'm not. I'm too old for Tinder. But the people who use it, <laughs> I, I met someone. I met someone who hacked it and in its early days and figured out how to meet lots and lots of women, and he had a very happy far away look when he talked about that moment um and i i think in general though i mean i i live in this very nice uh you know this building sort of far out in brooklyn and we've all moved in there with our kids and half the people in there met online so uh the physicality is very much there i think there's more physicality i think there's more people meeting up more people finding spaces for each other as a result at the ground level, and I think that at some level, the, the national conversation used to be able to set that agenda. They used to be able to say, like, here, you know, here are your candidates, here is your entertainment, and so on and so forth. And it, it's not that people have actively rejected it, it's just that they drift away in a way that is actually terrifying to people who have invested their, uh, you know, are hoping to send their children to private school based on the, the money that they make at their newspaper or um, or television network and I, I it, so that has really changed there's a, a drift that way and it, you just can't put that back in the box Maria just, uh, speak let's, let's be positive I, I, I want to hear you on the matter of the, the simple joy early on of getting online I still feel the excitement of, of speaking in our own voices in blogs 2003 the whole Emersonian bit for me, about following the gleam in your own mind from within, he says in Self-Reliance, and claiming your own words. Describe your own record at it. I feel exactly the same as I did back then. I, you know, the venues have changed. I go on Twitter, I talk with other journalists, I go on Slack, you know, I have different groups of people, and the number of voices that I'm able to contact intimately and immediately is so far beyond the wildest imaginings of my youth that I, I just think what you said earlier is absolutely right. We're in the middle of the explosion and we don't see what's happening. But if any of us had had the vaguest inkling that we would be able immediately to reach anyone and get anyone's opinion and make friends with people like literally all over the world and find out what's going on in real time, I don't think we would be looking at this as a bad thing. I wonder, I just want to remind you, I mean, I'm thinking of a wonderful essay from the period uh, near the start of the Iraq War 
by Jim Moore. The second superpower raises its beautiful head. He imagined that the Internet roused around the world could stop something as insane as, as that war. It didn't. It didn't, it didn't yeah. stop it for a moment. It hasn't touched... I mean, Bernie Sanders is different. There's an original voice there, but for the rest of it, it, it reads like uh, uh, infinite jest parody of our politics. Strong voices, clear ideas, speaking to things we actually worry about. Where, where is it? I think, yeah, I think we need to talk about how the, the corporatocrats have sort of taken over what we're... Amen. Really, we didn't really... know it would be all commercial back in 2003. We didn't... Yeah, it was so organic. And like at one moment, there was a moment when Facebook was a delight and you could just contact anybody, you know, and it wasn't mediated and there weren't advertisements and, you know, you weren't controlled and your your information wasn't being, like, sucked down like something out of the matrix. But, like, those things have changed and they have to be, like, fought back against. But, I mean, I see encouraging signs, you know. I think people are starting to realize they cannot rely on Facebook to get news. I mean, that was one thing I wanted to ask Paul about because we've talked now and then about how information is increasingly being controlled by these huge corporate entities that have absolutely no business, you know, interfering with how people inform themselves. So what happens when our kids grow up in a world where there isn't a newspaper on the breakfast table? I mean, something can be done about that. What's the newspaper, Daddy? Paul, explain. Well, hmm, I think, so first of all, the, the history of tech tends to, there's either a wave of great decentralization where everything explodes and a wave of counter-centralization where people start to make money, right? And so a good example is Napster shows up. And as a result, you end up with a situation that provides for iTunes to exist and then later Spotify. Those things couldn't co have come into existence without the enormous decentralization first. So there's you know, a fundamental level, capitalism kind of gets in there. Everybody panics for a while and it's the end of the world and then somebody finds a business opportunity, in that case, Steve Jobs. You wouldn't have Netflix without BitTorrent. Um, and you, that means you wouldn't have Orange is the New Black. So I, there's, a, there's a more of a trade going off. There's, you know, BitTorrent alone could not have created Orange is the New Black. And so we have to ask ourselves culturally, you know, what do we want? What do we like? What do we enjoy? I think what's interesting, though, is that... Um, Facebook is fascinating to me because it, it has very, you know, it, it's done incredibly well and it's enormous. And the web in general, the way that web advertising works, the way that giant social networks work, the, the margins are actually very low on a, on a given web page. They, they make it up in volume in an unbelievable way. And they are suspect or they, they're susceptible to trends, um, which is where Facebook actually proves a particular genius because they see Instagram expanding and they literally can see it if people are logging in through Facebook to get to Instagram. Uh, and they go ahead and they buy it and they bought WhatsApp and so on and so forth. So they're actually very aware of their own, the, the tight margins and the way that if they fall out of favor, they could just implode and they are very proactive about protecting themselves. So I think that these mega organizations are aware that they're susceptible and they're, they spend billions of dollars trying to be more protected. And we see that as them being impenetrable and them being un indestructible. Uh, and, and maybe they are. Maybe Facebook will win it. And Paul, let me, let me say, I mean, yeah. these are the corporate games that we worry about. I'm still longing for the public web. And I'm thinking of 
The high watermark, politically speaking, in my experience of the last decade, was 2004, 11 years ago, but it was the Howard Dean campaign's online open forum, 24-7, presided over by the incredible Zephyr Teachout. But I often said, and it was not just because I liked his politics, if you want to hear, if a Martian landed and say, take me to the sound of this country, I'd say, latch on to that Dean Webb. All kinds of people speaking from their hearts and their, you know, their interest and their, their anger. But it had the sound of the best town meeting tradition, shall we say. How do, we get, is, how do that, we get that back is my that question. That conversation still going on roughly at the same volume of people, the same number of people, the same audio. You don't hear it because there are these new giant megastructures on top of it. What it sounds to me like you're asking for is why didn't that become amplified in the same way that the corporate web became amplified? Why didn't the, the structure of the Howard Dean campaign scale out into the world so that well, we could have a, a more engaged and active Yeah, precisely. Democracy? Why did it go uh, commercial the way television did broadcasting from the early days? I mean, I run into this position all the time where it's just sort of like, I, I don't have an answer besides capitalism. I mean, it, it's America. Like, we, we do this over and over again. We create beautiful open platforms and then we go and, and comments and then people come in and go like, well, you know, what if we put up a, what if we put up a banner? What if we flew an airplane over that? You know, what if we brought in B-52s to buzz the, the, you know, the Super Bowl? What if, and it just kind of like, we, we just layer our, the bad parts or the, the less progressive parts of our culture back in the minute one of these explosions happens. And, uh, as a culture, we just don't fight that hard when it happens. And so that's, that's. I think we just kind of, everyone was like, well, the campaign's over. We went home. And in Paul, the meantime, Paul, stand by. Okay. Uh, we're talking about David Foster Wallace and the fulfillment in a certain way of his parody novel, Infinite Jest. We put this question of sadness, David Foster Wallace's and ours, to a venerated American writer, Renata Adler, this week. She's the very model of the independent literary mind. She was a star in her 20s as the New York Times movie critic. She's still a star in her 70s with young readers and critics all over again for a series of surprises in fiction and essays. Here's a taste of our conversation that continues after the break. I thought about the sadness. I think the public situation, insofar as I have any sense of it, is we have been losers. And when I was young growing up, there was still the age of American know-how, American stick-to-itiveness, Americans as nice guys, bringing Hershey bars to Paris, welcomed where they went. But as a period of public happiness, it was pretty great. And then what started to happen is we started to lose. We started to go one place after another, insofar as there is a we, which is Americans, where we didn't belong and where we were defeated. And in my memory, the first of those, in some ways the worst, was Vietnam. We had no business there. It was a civil war. It was a guerrilla war. Our guys died there. And everything worked to cover up that we lost. But that, after all, begins with Kennedy and ends with Ford. And people sort of tend to blame... Johnson and Nixon. It, it was just wrong. It was terrible for us. So it was a defeat. We're not used to it. This is Open Source.
I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Renata Adler started out after college in the 1960s calling herself the only registered Republican newspaper reporter in New York. She had big ups and some downs in fact and fiction pieces and criticism at the New York Times and the New Yorker. She was all over the political map, and she's still out there with a fresh collection of essays from the New York Review of Books. In conversation this week, her version of what we're all going through is feeling, as she was just saying, that something in our history is coming to an end. So we began losing, and sort of the notion, the cliche that it's not the crime or the act, it's the cover-up that gets you into trouble, I think is, like so many truisms and cliches, false. If you can keep the cover-up, you're in good shape. And there's so many instances that I don't even want to talk about it. If you just keep the cover-up long enough, everybody forgets about it or doesn't care about it or has new problems, things to keep the cover-up in place. So it didn't apply so much to Vietnam. But then they began to happen one after the other. What are we doing in Iraq? Afghanistan was another. These are all places where the wars are unwinnable. They are not our wars. It has nothing to do with us. We don't belong there, and our guys get killed, and we're going to lose. Even after 9-11, you'd say they have nothing to do with us? Well, 9-11 is a special case in that I would say long ago, Senator Moynihan Pat Moynihan, who was right about so many things and in Mm. retrospect was right about, I think, almost everything, said these secret agencies, the CIA, to a lesser extent the FBI, all of them, they have to go. They're always wrong about everything. They've been wrong about everything in the Cold War. They were wrong in Iran. They were wrong in Korea. They told President Truman the Chinese would never enter the war. You look at one CIA disaster after another, they're wrong about everything. They're infiltrated with spies, inevitably. And he said, we're we're a free society. We're not good at this sneaking around Mm. stuff, and there's no need for it when there's no war. So let's just abolish them. And he was not some nut, and he was not some far-out left-winger. He was a senator on the Intelligence Committee. And he, he wrote about secrecy, and he said, you know, secrecy is for losers, I think that's become so true because every time the intelligence agencies are wrong about something, which means almost every time they say anything, Mm. they say, well, you know, we didn't have enough money. You should have given us more money. And with 9-11, their second worst catastrophe to date, they didn't foresee it. They didn't analyze it. They made no sense of it. They got legislation passed, which takes away our rights as Americans and gives them rights as secrets. Then comes the miracle, in my view, Edward Snowden, who brings out this stuff, and they vilify him, and they say he's aiding our enemies by giving away the techniques that we have that are so wonderful. And I thought, if your techniques are so wonderful, how could you fail to detect that Edward Snowden is among you? I mean, I would have thought, end of story, but no. And there they are, and now they're actually the good guys we always were and were expected to be and thought ourselves to be became out of the question the minute these agencies started defending torture. That narrative is over, and I can't imagine that another crisis like the Second World War or anything like that can come and rescue us from a depression or from a certain feeling about ourselves or from an economic situation. I can't imagine where this narrative of our losing stops, because this administration is certainly, I don't see much difference. I mean, whether 
the president is saying we're in Iraq or we're not in Iraq or we're negotiating with Iran or we're not. It just it's just all they just churn it out and and what can we do? Except just get out of where we don't belong and see what happens mm-hmm. in a new in a new narrative. In the public discontent, I mean I, I hear an echo here of what Tony Scott was saying about DFW that he he was afflicted by a sense of belatedness. He got to the literary party sort of after it was winding down. But, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm leaping a bit, but you're saying, in effect, we, we're late at our own party and we don't think it's going to ever feel that way again. G.I. Joe. Yeah, and I live and have lived for a long time in Newtown, Connecticut, where those 26 people were gunned down. I mean, right, there right. Was. So there's a lot of questions there. Yes. Belatedly, I noticed there are flags everywhere, American flags everywhere, every picket fence, every, fl- every, every telephone pole, every doorway, every surface, including three trees that are close together, were painted with an American flag. I just noticed it a long time afterwards, and I thought, wait a minute, what's that about? And I suddenly realized that because it got to be more and more. I notice it's not here in Boston so much, but it's very much throughout New England, that every time, I mean, usually when you wave the flag, it's for victories. When I was young, you know, we had Flag Day or we had the 4th of July or we had the war. It showed you were on the right side. Now, it's a sign of despair. Every time something goes wrong, more flags go up. I mean, is there another country where you see a flag on every... But you see it with ISIS because they're winning something and because they're, you know, but we're, we do it when we're losing, including when children are murdered. I mean, what is an American flag doing there? So here you are today. You're sort of beyond partisanship. You're a freewheeling, deep researcher and independent thinker. I want to know how you account with your method in your mind and all the reading you've done over many, many years for what we're calling the, the public discontent, this this. The melancholy of our moment. Well, for one thing, I think not just the country as a community, insofar as you can say a country so large and diverse is a community at all, has lost its sense of being right and has lost its experience of winning. But on the personal front, everybody's losing too. Nobody's doing very well. I mean, the 1% is doing very well, but the schools aren't so hot. Life isn't so great. I mean, life was better, I think, for most people 20 years ago, 30 years ago, mm. 40 years ago. I don't, I don't know people who are, even in material ways, let alone intellectual or spiritual ways, better off than they were. So even the sense that, that everything is going our way personally or it isn't. Do you know a lot of optimists? I mean, leaving aside that some people are born sad and some people are born full of hope and joy, do you know many people who, who feel just optimistic about their personal prospects? Yeah, I know some optimists, but I, I know very few people who see a way forward in the public conversation. Nobody I know feels we're talking about the right stuff. The public conversation's sort of gone to hell officially. I think that's exactly right. When I was young, I was pretty conservative about a number of issues, and, and I said... You know, if there's one thing that I very much did not admire, it was the apocalyptic sensibility that finds everything to be the worst ever, and this is the end and ever. And now I find I've 
turned slightly apocalyptic myself. I think this is the end of the happy narrative of the United States, perhaps, um, Western civilization, perhaps, humanity, perhaps. I wonder what relics we're going to leave for the people who won't be very good readers, perhaps, will not have a memory, have memories in common with ours. They'll have pictures. I, I think there's a war mm. between, not a war, but there's a tension between the visual yep. depiction of fact and the verbal. And the net leads more toward the visual. I mean, what you see, you believe more, and people are more used to taking photographs or sending texts. Future historians are not going to find a lot of journals in attics, or they're not going to find a lot of documents to tell them what was going on. They'll find a lot of selfies, I think. They'll find selfies, exactly. And they'll think that's history, and maybe it is. But if it is, I don't see it. That was Renata Adler, the writer in Boston this week. Her new collection of essays over many years is called After the Tall Timber. You can hear a long excerpt of that conversation on our website, radioopensource.org. Our guests, Paul Ford and Maria Bustillos, internet mavens both, optimists, speak to that melancholy theme there, the chance as Renata Adler was saying that the narrative is winding down. Start with you, Maria. Um, and what if it's not about media at all? Yeah, Teeps. I, you know, this is one of the things I was thinking about listening to this. I know a lot of very young people. Um, I have, you know, kids in their in their 20s, and the house is full of, you know, undergraduates and kids who are going to, like, good schools and being exposed to tons of ideas. And I, I find them incredibly vital and fascinating and optimistic and you know they've got their own poets they've got like Kendrick Lamar and people like that who like if older people will just listen to what they're doing and sort of give their media a chance they're very witty you know they may be witty on the telephone but emotions and connections will find a way to make themselves like regardless of what technology or sort of what container they're in so I kind of don't have a lot of truck with the idea that that the culture is becoming dumber or worse because the containers are different. Paul Ford, speak to Renata. She's talking about a a downhill slide, not just U.S., maybe Western civilization, maybe the old human race. And deal with it. How do we deal with it? You know, I used to be an editor at Harper's Magazine, and on my second day there, we had a very (laughs) pessimistic meeting. And I didn't know that they were all going to be that pessimistic. And I turned to a, an editor and I was like, well, you know, you got to have some hope. And he looked at me and he went, we don't do that here. <laughs> and um, he ended up being a good friend. And he's actually far from a pessimist. But I, I think that a, a pessimistic, the pessimistic literary mode is, is almost classic, right? Like it's, it's, it's a way of the suspicious mode of looking at the world. And Dear Lord, there are ef- there's evidence of a debased public discussion. There's evidence of the commons being taken away. Um, and Maria and I are both people who live lives of tremendous privilege. We have access to tons of information. We have money. We have roles. You know, we, we have missions and choices that we get to make. And I, I try to be really mindful of that because in, in, the majority of people do not. And so I... The, The thing that bugs me day to day is that the world of media and in particular the world of publishing, the world of literature with a capital W for white dudes is 
not necessarily mm. inclusive and it keeps those people out and i think that even though the efforts of the internet have been sloppy and often shameful uh to to bring more people into the fold they're very well intentioned and i've hit a point in my life where i will take the well-intentioned guy with a with a crappy cell phone trying to teach someone how to code more than I will take the pessimistic essayist. Um, you speak of yeah. pr privilege, privilege, Paul, and we're all privileged, but how is it that so rapidly the web and its spokesmanship and its opportunity has come so quickly to, rep to, to reflect the inequality that we worry about everywhere else in the society? Well, the commercialism, but also the, the inequality of voices. I'd love to hear Maria on this, but there's never been anything that centralizes more cheaply. You know, the, the margins are so low on, on and the, the same thing that makes Facebook so easy to infinitely reproduce the, is the same thing that also makes it possible to reach millions and millions of people and to aggregate tiny bits of money from them towards one or two or three individuals. And so you're talking about an enormous audience that's available very cheaply driving money towards a few individuals who are not ready or trained or prepared for a public role and haven't been through, you know, the, the forge and the fire of, of, you know, media criticism. They show up at 26 and they want to, they want to change the world and they've only known success. And so uh, they're insufferable. That's a question for you, Maria. We had, we had some great figures. I don't know if you guys remember Salam Pax. Do you remember that blogger? Mm -hmm. Salam Pax during the Iraq War, um, who is an Iraqi kid. Baghdad guy. Burning, I remember. Is that the... Oh, my God. Great book. You know, like, right. and I think both of you probably will have read that essay, The Web We Have to Save. Um, Hossein Darakshan. Hoder wrote, himself. Guess, He's a free man yeah. again. Go ahead. Oh, my God. So great. You know, I think of all the things that I've seen recently, that essay spoke the most to my feeling about what the web has been and should be and can be again. And in fact, is kind of like under the radar. It's what you were saying earlier. It's like we sort of amplified the wrong parts of it. But the people who are connecting via hyperlinks by themselves and finding their own co connections and and creating their own sort of mosaics of understanding, kind of like in a McLuhan-esque way, you know, that his idea of a galaxy for understanding rather than a hierarchical structure, which is exactly the thing that makes Wikipedia so great. I think that that exists and is growing, like, in the middle of the explosion with us. And everything he said was completely right, and I'm completely ready to put my shoulder to the wheel to see that that is the web that grows and persists, but you have to sort of fight against profiteers to get that to happen, because if there is five cents to be grabbed, there is going to be somebody there to grab it, and that is how we've all sort of been controlled, sort of between the state control exerted by the NSA and the corporate control, we've been sort of enslaved. Hmm. Hoder's essay coming out of an Iranian prison and saying, where did the web go while I was in captivity? is a warning and a challenge to all of us. Maria Bustillos, thank you. Paul Ford, thank you. Also, A.O. Scott and Renata Adler, thank you. Here finally is David Foster Wallace in high inspirational style. Kenyon College, 2005, three years to live. In a commencement address, he called, This is Water. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. 
and a compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom all to be lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. This kind of freedom has much to recommend it. But of course there are all different kinds of freedom, and the kind that is most precious you will not hear much talked about much in the great outside world of wanting and achieving and displaying. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and being able truly to care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad petty little unsexy ways every day. That is real freedom. That is being educated and understanding how to think. The alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. That was David Foster Wallace in 2005. Our show this week was produced by Max Larkin, Connor Gillies, Pat Tomeno, and Zach Goldhammer, with help from Grant Holub-Mormon and Kunal Jasti. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath is our executive producer. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time for Open Source. <laughs>